If you would now please take a copy of God's Word and turn to the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. And this morning, our sermon text will be Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Let me remind you what has come right before verse 7. Uh, in verse 1, the Apostle Paul makes a transition in the letter, and he encourages and exhorts the believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling as Christians. And the first thing he wants to address is believers' relationship with other believers. And in order to lay the groundwork for that, he wants to tell us of our unity. And that is to be the foundation of our relationships with one another. And he lays that out in verses 1 through 6. And then we come to verse 7. He teaches us about our diversity, but it's not opposed to our unity. He wants to show us how the variety within the body of Christ serves its unity, its maturity, and it is God's design for the building up of his church. Before we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, let us ask for God's help in prayer again this morning. Would you join me and pray? Our great God, we ask you that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and knowledge of you. Help us to understand your word this morning. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear that we might know the hope that you've called us to, that we might know the riches of the glorious inheritance that awaits us through Christ Jesus our Lord. May we be equipped to bring glory to our Savior and that we would grow in his grace. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Recently, my kids 
decided to take some patio furniture cushions and pile them up in the yard. And they stacked up the, the pillows as high as they could. And quickly we realized the purpose was so that they could launch themselves off of the deck and that patio furniture cushions would be their crash pad. Well, it was a terrible idea. It was poorly engineered, and it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that it was headed for trouble. And then just a couple days later, I caught my son scaling the bay window in the living room, ready to launch himself after a helium balloon that was stuck at the top of the ceiling. And I quickly realized that there's only one way he's going to come close is that he's going to have to go full Superman, stretch out to grab that balloon, and yet he will be feet away from it. And I said, buddy, let daddy get that for you, please. It's one of the things I never thought that I'd have to really teach as a parent, but it's become one of the most important lessons to teach my children as a father. You were not made to fly. You weren't made to fly. That's not how God made your body. That's not how he designed you to be and to function. You need to know how God made you and what you're good at, and flying isn't one of them. It's a good theology of the body. We teach our kids, boys are boys, girls are girls, because that's how God created you. We teach them that God created them wonderfully, and that he has a purpose for their design. Well, if it's true of the biological body, it's true of the spiritual body, of the body of Christ, that God has designed us in such a way with a function and a purpose in order that we would grow in maturity, in order that we would grow together, in order that we would grow in Christlikeness. And that's what Paul has put before us here in Ephesians chapter 4. The design and the function of the parts of the body in order that the body of Christ might, might be built up. And he's done so right in the middle of his letter. Let me remind you that the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has emphasized the indicatives for the Christian. That means, what does God's word say about who you are? It's not about what you're supposed to do as much as this is your identity in Christ now. Both as an individual believer and as the church, he has given one indicative after another in the first three chapters. In the last three chapters, he moves to the imperatives. Now, therefore, live in this way. Do this. Obey this. Don't do this. Instead, live like this. That is the second half of the book of Ephesians, but right in the middle of that, he makes sure that we understand how the body works, how the body of Christ is designed to function. And I think there's a clear message to say that, yes, Paul will address relationships. He will address ethics. He will address sanctification and growing in holiness and Christlikeness. He will address a godly marriage. He will address children. He will address spiritual warfare in the second half of this letter. 
But there, I think there's a clear message that says that if you want a godly marriage, if you want to see progress in sanctification and growth in holiness, if you want to be a witness where God has placed you now, distinct from the unbelievers around you in your, your workplace, if you want to have God-honoring relationships, you got to know the role of the body of the Christ. And you got to find your place and function in the body of Christ. You need the body, but that's not all that Paul wants to say. He wants to say that the body needs you. And that is God's plan. So I wanted to look at three sections of verses 7 through 16. First, we'll consider verses 7 through 10. There we'll see a unified body relies on diversity. Then we'll look at verses 11 through 14, and there we'll see that everyone in the body is called to ministry. And we may add in parentheses, just not the same ministry. And then in verses 15 through 16, as a body, we are dependent on our head and each other. Let's begin. Our unity needs our diversity in verses 7 through 10. What kind of diversity is the Apostle Paul pointing us to here? Well, he's not emphasizing the diversity of background, of age, experience, race. No, there's other places in Scripture that shows the beauty of that sort of diversity in the body of Christ. But this isn't the type of diversity that the Apostle Paul wants us to see here. Here, the diversity is that we haven't been given the same grace. Now, immediately, that should cause alarm bells to go off in your head, saying, what do you mean, Paul, we haven't been given the same grace? What, what are you getting at? Well, the Greek word for grace, let me remind you, is the word charis. It means gift. It is a gift. And here in the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul lays out saving grace on one hand and serving grace on the other. It's the grace that we're saved by, and then it's the grace for service. He has highlighted that in his own life and ministry. In chapter 3, Paul introduces the idea of grace for serving. There he says that he was given grace to be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. In Ephesians 3, 1 and 2, and then verses 7 and 8, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And then verse 7 and 8 of chapter 3, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And now here he tells every Christian, every believer, you have been given a grace for service, a grace for ministry. You have been given a gift. But he wants to be clear, it's not the same grace it's the same saving grace that we all receive and are shown 
in the person of the Son. But then the person of the Son has given us different grace, different gifts for serving. The best commentary on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 is probably Paul's own words in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. There he says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Everyone has a gift. We don't all have the same gifts because the body needs variety, a diversity of gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, he would go on to lay out further his explanation of this by further expounding the body metaphor. The different organs in our bodies do different things, and that is how God has designed the body of Christ to function. But it's important to recognize that there at the end of verse 7, the gift that was given to you, the gift that was given to I, myself, is according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ determines the gift. We don't get to decide which gift we have for serving the body. We may ask. We may desire. But we don't get to determine the gifts we have. Christ does. And it's according to the measure of his gift. And Paul will, just here later in the passage, return to the importance of us using our gifts in ministry. But before doing so, in order that we rightly employ the gifts in the body, I think he wants us to take a moment and think about how we receive the gifts in the first place. He doesn't want us to get too caught up in the gifts right here. First, he wants us to think about the giver. And so he does so in verses 8 and then 9 and 10. And verse 8, he says, therefore it says, and he quotes from Psalm 68, 18. There it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He wants to say, you have been given gifts by the ascended victorious Lord. This is who gave you the gifts. And so he cites Psalm 68, and he cites the section of the psalm that describes God's returning to Mount Zion victoriously in battle. But in the Old Testament, if you were to turn in the English Standard Version, your ESV Bible and other Bibles, if you were to read Psalm 68 verse 18, it's a little different than what is said here by Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 8. Here it says in Ephesians, he gave gifts to men. But there in Psalm 68, 18, it says that he received gifts from among men. He received gifts. There is a difference, or is there? Now, some have proposed that Paul is using certain manuscripts that had the words, he gave gifts to men, rather than receiving gifts. Others propose that Paul intentionally changed the wording of Psalm 68 in order to apply it to Christ's victory in his ascension. But that sort of changing of the wording of the New Testament isn't, I think, the, a good representation of how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. What we do see with the New Testament writers is that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they give a full sense of, of an Old Testament passage. 
that in light of Christ's coming and his resurrection, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the book of Ephesians inspired Psalm 68, and the Apostle Paul is able to give a fuller sense of what is there already in Psalm 68. Because in Psalm 68, it's the picture of the victorious king returning from battle with the plunder of his enemies. Well, what would a victorious king do? He wouldn't just gather the plunder, receive the gifts, but he would share the bounty of his victory with his people. They're correlating ideas. The victorious king receiving and giving the gifts. And so Paul authoritatively interprets Psalm 68 to mean that Jesus is God, that he is Yahweh incarnate, that he is the Lord take on flesh, the eternal begotten Son of God who has conquered his enemies, conquered the foes of his people, conquered sin, Satan, and death. And he has received the spoils of victory and he shares those riches with his people. And the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost points to this, that at the ascension of Christ, we see his victory is complete. And there he is at the right hand of God. And in Acts 2, verse 33, it says, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, being Jesus, has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the greatest gift. We all share the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the heart of the believer. And it's the same Holy Spirit who then empowers a variety of spiritual gifts that each believer has been given by Christ. There's more that Paul wants us to know about the giver It's not just that he is the victorious king return with the captives, returning with his enemies that he's conquered and giving gifts to his people. But he wants to remind us that before the giving of gifts, the Lord suffered for his people. There in verse 9, it says, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. The descent that Paul's describing here is not just his incarnation. He could have said that he left the throne of heaven and came to earth. But there he says, to the lower regions or the lower parts. What Paul is getting at, the one who gives the gifts suffered in order to give those gifts to his people. It's referring to Christ's full humiliation. Not just the taking on flesh as a baby, everything that was necessary for our salvation, that he humbled himself. The Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, verse 27, outlines Christ's humiliation in this. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. In the history of church, this verse 9, the descent that's spoken of in the history of the church, 
we have interpreted and understand this to be the time spent at least in his grave. The time between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And it refers to that and all his humiliation. That the God of all glory experienced thirst and hunger. That he was betrayed by friends. That he submitted to the authority of his earthly parents. All his humiliation is there in his descent. But after his humiliation, Paul wants us to know that the giver of gifts was exalted to rule over all things and that his rule is to fill all things. His exaltation is a reality now, but the clearest manifestation of his reign is here in the church. One day, all of the rebellious creation will bow the knee to Jesus. But until then, the one who fills all things is filling his church. What manifold grace we have received, saving grace and gifts of grace that show that Christ is reigning at the right hand of God. What manifold grace. We were once among the captives. We were once among his enemies. And now, by his blood, we share in the spoils of his victory. And now, by the giving of his spirit, we share in the bounty of his reign in order that his reign would be made known throughout the earth. In his obedience, he secured our gracious salvation and gifts of grace. And part of the way he is making his reign known is when his people use their gifts. Now, this determines how we should approach using the gifts that we've been given. See, there's two traps when it comes to believers using their spiritual gifts. There, there probably is more than two traps, but there is at least two. Uh, one would be pride, and the other would be envy. Pride would be those who've been gifted in ways that it's easy for others to notice. Maybe teaching gifts or music gifts, upfront gifts. That's certainly a trap for those who are called to serve the body in that way, that it will become about their ego or their own self-importance. And so that would be one trap, pride. Another would be envy. Maybe some of you, you have behind-the-scenes gifts. Many have gifts that aren't often recognized and celebrated. And I would ask you to forgive your brothers and sisters for not celebrating all gifts. But what is the trap for those who, who have gifts that aren't often put up front and for everyone to recognize? Well, maybe they might be inclined to envy the gifts of others and desire that they would get more recognition. Now, to be honest, if you have upfront gifts or behind-the-scenes gifts, you still could be prone to envy or pride in both situations. But that's a generalization of what the traps may be. But what does Paul point us to in the using of our gifts when he fixes our attention on the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ? What is he doing? He's saying that follow Christ's example. 
he modeled for us in descending for our salvation. The using of our gifts should not be a reason for pride, but it's our humble service following the humility of our Lord. We humbly use our gifts in a cross-like way, laying down our lives for one another, not seeking to exalt ourselves, but to build others up and to exalt Christ. And then when we remember that the using of our gifts is a demonstration of Jesus' reign in the world today, instead of coveting someone else's gifts, we thank Jesus for the generosity that he has shown us in salvation and giving us spiritual gifts to serve with. And so we serve with gratitude and gladness, no matter if our gifts are ever celebrated or recognized. When we focus on the giver of the gift, we'll be satisfied with the gift we've been given. When we behold the giver of the gifts, we will not despise our gifts. We will be thankful for our gifts and for the gifts of others. When we behold the giver of gifts, we will not make the gifts about ourselves. Our unity needs our diversity, and Jesus is the one who determines who gets what gifts for the good of his body. Then moving on to verses 11 through 14, everybody in the body is called to ministry, just not the same ministry. There, we have one of the lists of the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. There are different listings, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. But here, Paul gives a unique list because he doesn't emphasize particular gifts in this list, but ministry roles, ministry functions, ministry positions, ministry offices. And he emphasized that they are a gift to the church. There we see a, a listing of five but it's most likely four offices that are gifts to the church that Christ has given. The apostles is the first one listed. Now, the, the word apostle is used several ways in the New Testament. It basically means messenger or representative of someone else. Here, the apostle Paul means those who were set apart by Jesus for the founding and early leadership of the church. It's there in Acts chapter 1, after Judas has betrayed and has, has died, he's no longer among the 12. The 12 said, we need to replace his function, his purpose, his office. And in Acts 21 and 22, they say, it's, it needs to be someone who was a witness to the Lord's teaching and to his resurrection in order that he might lead the church in light of Christ's life, death, resurrection in order that he might shape it. And then the Apostle Paul was one specially set apart who was called personally by Jesus, a personal witness to the risen Lord on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. These are the ones who played a founding role both in shaping the doctrine and structure of the church. Along with them was the prophets, in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, it says, Now in these days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. There were some who after Christ's ascension, along with the apostles, were given special revelation for the church while the church was being established. At times, occasionally, they would foretell future events we see in the New Testament. But they were also, like the apostles, given revelation from the Holy Spirit for the church and for the purpose of exhorting and encouraging the church. These two offices were foundational to the church, and they're not perpetual offices. They're not offices for today because the Apostle Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Speaking of the church, says, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We are still the beneficiaries of their ministry, but the office of the apostle and the office of the prophet were not intended to be perpetual. The next office that's identified is that of the evangelist. Christ has given evangelists to his church. The word here is in this chapter, and then it's in Acts 21, verse 8, and then in 2 Timothy, verse 4 and 5. In Acts 21, it's a reference to Philip as an evangelist. In 2 Timothy, it is Paul telling the young pastor Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. During the Reformation era, the way that this was interpreted is that the office of the evangelist was a special appointee of the apostles, that it was someone who for a limited time was sent out with the authority of the apostles in order to spread the gospel and plant churches. Today, we use the word evangelist for someone who is especially gifted in sharing and preaching the gospel to unbelievers. Did you know in our own denomination, part of a teaching elder, which is what I am and what Pastor Jason is, part of our job description in the book of church order is that we would do the work of evangelists, that that is part of the pastor's job description. Also in our denomination, a teaching elder can be set apart for the work of an evangelist, meaning that they can go somewhere where there aren't many churches and then they can receive members and train elders and deacons in order to establish a church. Then there is the fourth or fourth and fifth office. I say it's a fourth because unlike the, the previous offices of he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, it just says the shepherds and teachers. There's one article that governs both shepherd and teachers. And so many have, and I agree with this, is that it is the same office because the work of teaching and shepherding pastoring church leadership, it's hard to pull them apart. Because once you start teaching God's word, you can't just teach and walk away from it. There's the applying, discipling, exhorting that comes along with it. There is church discipline that must follow along with the preaching and teaching of God's word. So I think it's right to understand this as shepherd teachers. For in 1 Timothy 3, 2, describing the leaders of the church, the overseers, the elders. The apostle Paul told Timothy that an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So here, 
Christ puts the focus on church leadership, but it's only momentarily because he clarifies what is the purpose of those gifts to the church. And did you see what it was? In verse 12, there are three phrases. They're all related. They shouldn't be taken independently. To take these three phrases and to interpret them independently in verse 12 is that you set a, a divide between clergy and laity. And we've seen that happen in the, the history of the church in different traditions. But what the Apostle Paul is getting at, he's saying the purpose of church leadership is to, in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The first goal for church officers is to equip every believer for what? For ministry, because the ultimate goal is the building up of the body. Here, equip means to train, to develop. And here, we get a good illustration for the church. I like the illustration that says that the church is a hospital for sinners, because Jesus himself said he came for the sick, and he meant the sin sick. He meant the hurting. He meant those who've been broken by the sin of others and who are suffering because of their own sin. So I like the, the image of saying the body of Christ is, is like a hospital, but here the image is more like a gym. It's like a gym, and we're all part of bodybuilding. We're all to see the body grow. And how is it done? It's done through every member ministry. See, the purpose of our gifts is not to differentiate us from others just for the sake of knowing who's different, who's separate, who's distinct, but it's so that we all might contribute to the ministry. Every member ministry is built upon the ministry of the Word. Because of the five offices the Apostle Paul lists for them, what do they all share in common? Well, they all share in common the ministry of God's Word, both apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. And so that helps us know how we, every member of the body, are to be equipped for the ministry of building up the body. It's through the ministry of God's Word. The ministry of God's Word is worked out through the body, through every member. And we're given both a positive and negative kind of direction here. There, in beginning in verse 13, it says that every member ministry for the building up of the body of Christ is for the unity of the body. We are already united as believers, but our unity comes in matters of degrees. We are united by the same Savior, placed in the same body, but we can grow in that unity. So what does growth in that unity look like? What does the apostle identify for us? Attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The faith is the objective body of truth that Christians hold. It is our doctrines. It is not referencing our personal faith there, but as he's done earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about the faith that all Christians share. We are to, how do we grow in unity? 
and we grow in our knowledge of the truth together. But then it's knowledge of the Son of God. There's the objective knowledge of the faith and then the experiential knowledge of we each grow in depths of knowledge and relationship with our Savior, with the head of the body, with the goal being there, maturity. Maturity. That we would grow up into mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that tells us something. What does it tell us? It tells us that every member ministry, the ministry of the word, the building up of the body, all of us using our gifts to build the body is a project that will not end because until he returns, we will not reach the full stature of Christlikeness as a church. It's a continuing project that will never end. See, the church is, is in two states. The, the militant church, that is every believer across the globe right now who is walking on this planet. We have been saved by grace and we've been given gifts of grace to build up the body, but we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. We cling to hope and faith that one day we will see our Savior. But there's another state of the church, and it's the church triumphant. It's those who have already gone on to glory and that their eternal rest has begun and they are awaiting the resurrection and they are awaiting the, the coming together of the church triumphant and the church militant one day at the consummation. But until that day comes when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new, there will be a church militant and the church militant will always have the project of building the body. That is the positive that is laid out for every member ministry. The unity heading towards greater knowledge of our Savior and maturity like him but then we're given the negative. What happens if every member is not participating in the ministry of the church? Well, then we are prone to error. We are prone to trouble. We are prone to be misled. That's what it says, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and despair in deceitful schemes. He is concerned in doctrinal purity and in doctrinal correctness and that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro given the image of a ship that's being tossed by the wind. He says that we would no longer be children. Now, oftentimes in scriptures, children are held up as an example and it's a, a childlike receiving of the kingdom that is to be the example. But here, it's a negative example of children that we are to avoid, that we are to grow past. In Hebrews, it says that we are to grow past infancy. And here, the Apostle Paul must emphasize that if we don't grow, we remain naive and unstable like children are. 
as the ministry of the word equips every member for ministry, it's going to produce stability in the church. Stability in her doctrine, stability in growth and maturity. Everyone in the body is called to ministry because every member ministry is how Jesus builds his body. And lastly, in verses 15 through 16, we are dependent on our head and on each other. Verses 15 and 16. We often think of spiritual growth as an individual project. But Paul here in this passage has been shifting our perspective. He's not denying the importance of spiritual growth, but he wants us to see the importance of corporate spiritual growth. Think about it. In verse 15, it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Oftentimes, we apply that passage to personal communication. Now, what the Apostle Paul is not saying right there is that we should be truthful people. He'll say that in chapter 4, verse 25. He'll say, therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. No, the immediate application is not to speak the truth to one another, and it's the immediate application is not primarily to speak the truth of God's word in love to one another, that's a good application. It's a necessary application of that phrase in verse 15. But there is a primary application, a more important application. He's referring to us as a body. So this is what we are corporately speaking and our corporate character. As we are addressed as a body, then this is in just as it's a body in verses 4 through 6 and the unity of faith in verse 13 of chapter 4, we as a body speak the truth in love. It's our confession together as a body. So you can lead the profession of the Apostles' Creed with, let us profess our faith together using the Apostles' Creed or taking our cue from uh, Ephesians 4 verse 15, you could say, let us speak the truth in love using the Apostles' Creed. Truth is the content. Love is what is to mark the character of the confessing body. We confess the truth together in the manner of our profession and lives with one another and in the world is to be characterized by love. If we are bold in our speaking of the truth, but it's not done in love, what are we doing? We're demonstrating that we haven't fully embraced the truth that we are professing. As a church, if we confess the faith but do not love the loss, we have forgotten the love of God shown to rescued sinners. We've forgotten that we were once among the captives, lost and without God who needed to be rescued. If, as a church, if we confess the truth but do not love one another, those within the church, we have forgotten that because of the gospel, we are truly brothers and sisters in the family of God. Paul is pointing us to corporate spiritual growth, corporate Christ-likeness. He's saying in verse 16, he makes it clear, be like your head, 
Be like Jesus. But there in verse 16, he says, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He's pointing to that our growth is dependent upon our head. That Christ is growing his body and he is the source of that growth and he is the aim of that growth. And he that began a good work in us will complete it. We are dependent on the head for the direction and for where to go. But there it says we are dependent on one another as well. Each part needs to be working properly to make the body grow. You need the body. The body needs you. And we are all to put the needs of the body, growth and Christlikeness, above our own needs. And so it's good for each of us to ask, what are my gifts? What is the gift of grace that Christ has given me according to his measure that I might participate in every member ministry in the body? How do you go about knowing your function, knowing that what God has created you to be? Well, a couple uh, ideas, and you could see these as building upon another. The first idea is take time to study the passages that do list the spiritual gifts. None of the passages are exhaustive, but they are instructive. So 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4 are all places that speak about spiritual gifts. And having studied God's word, pray. Humble yourself before God and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray and serve. Pray and serve. And in your serving, identify what you would desire to do. The God who sovereignly distributes his gifts is the God who uniquely created each one of us. Therefore, it is reasonable to expect that there would be correspondence between the way he wired us and the spiritual gifts he gives us after we've been born again. There would be correspondence in the way that he uniquely made each one of us and then the service to which he has called us to within the body. Identify what you're good at doing. Identify what you are better at doing. We all can't be good at everything. Music is not my thing. In the course of my life, I've tried over and over to learn different instruments. I mean, for goodness sake, I'm the son of a professional jazz guitarist. It, music has to be somewhere in me. I have to be, but I can't. It just doesn't happen. And I've come to accept that, that God has not gifted me to serve the body with music. But it would, it would be a terrible shame if I insisted on music ministry and I spent my weeks trying to learn how to play the piano. No, you need to identify what you're good at and be honest at what you're not good at. And ask others. Ask others to recognize 
What giftings do you see? Ask your, your elders. Ask members of your growth group. Ask your, your spouse or your roommate or fellow believers or those who've discipled you or mentored you. Or ask those who you discipled and mentored. Say, what gifts do you see? We don't determine each other's gifts. I don't determine your gift, and you don't determine my gift. But I have a job to recognize your gift. And we are to recognize one another's gifts. There's plenty of ways to serve the body of Christ here at URC. There's ministry teams to be a part of. I commend, if you're not committed to a growth group, that you would do so in order that there would be a place for personal ministry and a place to serve others immediately with the gifts that you've been given. There's a unique opportunity to serve the body coming up. As many of you have seen the announcement that came out Thursday, we're going to be resuming in-person worship services here in a couple weeks. And as many of you have already guessed and know to be true, this will require extra service, extra help. It's going to require many gifts coming together. So if you're interested in serving with resuming in-person worship services, I would encourage you to email our operations manager, Tom Spaulding. That's tspaulding at urcstaff.org. If that is a place you say, yes, whatever my gifts may be, I want to serve and be a part of that. We need each other right now. We need each other all the time. Isn't that the point of this passage here in Ephesians 4? And that's been a much repeated refrain in the last eight or nine weeks, how much we need each other and we're in this together. I didn't choose this passage anticipating the circumstances we were in. I decided that on this day, this Sunday, uh, back months ago, that we would come to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 7 through 16, when it was my turn to preach uh, on this Sunday in May, because I was hoping to use this passage to promote and to equip and to fire you up about what would have been this summer's Give, Serve initiative. If you're new to URC, Give, Serve is where we as a body find an area in the community where we can serve both believers and unbelievers, and then where as a body we try to find our place to serve our fellow members at URC. And though there may still be a Give, Serve initiative to come in the, the coming weeks this summer, I've been pleasantly surprised, and I know many of you have seen this and noticed this, that URC, you didn't wait for an official initiative to come. And thank you that for the last nine weeks you have been giving generously both to the church and to one another, that you have been serving, that even though the regular way of serving hasn't been available for many of you, you still have found ways to use your gifts and to serve the body. And keep it up. Don't stop. There will be a day that things will be more regular than they are right now. 
But we as a body, we will see through this irregular time together. And we long for the day that we won't have to be as creative in serving one another. But until that day comes, keep it up. But don't just long for the day of in-person worship services. Don't just long for the day where regular church life resumes and we can do more things in the building together. Don't just long for that day. No, our, our passage points us to the day when we see our Savior. The day when the church is no longer militant, but only triumphant. Our passage points us to the day that we will be like the one who saved us as a body. That what we have by faith, we'll have by sight. So long for the day for the church's full glory when we see our Savior face to face. Amen? Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Would you join me in prayer again? Our great God, this is quite a passage, so much to say, so much here that is for our good, so many good reminders, and I give thanks that you have blessed the body of URC with so many gifts. Help us to serve one another for your purposes, for your glory, and for the extension of your kingdom in this world. And Lord, we ask that you would increase our longing to be with one another, but more importantly, increase our longing to be with you. And may that be the underlying motive for all our ministry. The glory of our Savior and our longing to see him face to face one day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.